0: Thank you so much again for this morning so far that you've given us. The reminder of your amazing grace is so fresh in our minds and we thank you that you have showered grace upon us even though we don't deserve it. And Lord one day we'll stand before you for eternity singing your praises for the grace and mercy that you've shown us. And so this morning as we continue to look at the book of Joshua and we also have an opportunity to remember your death through communion Lord I pray that you would uh, just use this time to glorify your name. God, to to bless those who are here as we endeavor to live this life that you've called us to. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. While everybody's getting comfortable, I'm going to ask if uh, one of our deacons who knows where the remote is to the uh, air conditioners. The air conditioners are set to uh, heat. We don't need them to heat. We need them to cool. So if somebody could do that. The remotes are in the hallway. I know this is distracting from the service, but I'm hot. Is anybody else hot It is just me? Okay, everybody's hot, so we need to get the air conditioners on. Okay, all right. No, I didn't mean hot in that way. All right. I heard it. I heard it. Whew. All right, so hopefully we'll uh, cool down a little bit as we uh, go into this. Um, we've had a great opportunity today already uh, to be encouraged and to learn through baptism, through our music, uh, and uh, I, I just want to, again, say with our music time, like, it's an opportunity not just to sing, but it's an opportunity to reflect on words that truly do reflect God's word. And so, uh, as we do that, it's also an opportunity not only to enjoy music and to enjoy God, but it's also a time to truly learn. And so, it's been a blessing so far as we've been together. And then after the sermon, we're going to be able to have a time of communion, which is always a blessing to all of us. Uh, in which also will be a time of learning and a time of reflection. And so today uh, is a really exciting day uh, as we think about our faith with Jesus. And um, in the midst of that, uh, the sermon today is going to be on sin. So um, so in the midst of all these high notes, we're going to talk about some tough things today as we look at what happens next in the book of Joshua. And uh, as we look at it, we will see... Uh, the seriousness of sin and what God has done about it. And as we do that, then we'll have an opportunity to remember through communion. You know, we all know, we've heard tragedy stories all around of people who have made decisions, whatever that was, whatever that might be, to to get high on a substance or to uh, get drunk, or to whatever somebody might do, make bad decisions in life, and then go out and have, as though they make those bad decisions, will end up having something happen, and a consequence will happen. You know, we know that we hear all the time that drunk driving is a huge issue, and how many times uh, drunk driving has claimed the lives of people, but we also are told many times um, that... The, the driver isn't usually the one that is the hurt, hurt the worst or killed. Usually it's those who are on the receiving end. Um, and you hear a lot about that and you, we get angry and we start to think about why do people make decisions uh, that will one day not only give consequences to them, but it can give consequences to someone else. And perhaps we've heard a story, perhaps one of those stories is in, in your life, in your family. Uh, this isn't for me to try to judge anyone on this. God gives forgiveness for those things. But we are in a society that does whatever they want to do and don't, and despite whatever the consequence might be for themselves or despite the consequence that it might be for other people. You look around and it's pretty clear that you see that people will do anything and whatever they like to do, uh, is sinful, it doesn't matter, and you'll often hear, well, it's just, it's my life and I can do what I want. I used to be like that with the seatbelt law. You know, and I, I, my very first ticket was a ticket for me not wearing my seatbelt. And uh, it was a long story, I won't tell you the whole story, but I will say this, that at the time, this was my complaint after I got the ticket, was, how is this fair that the government expects me to wear a seatbelt? How can they tell me how to live? This doesn't make any sense, and and I was upset, and I've had things explained to me since that there are reasons why it is important and smart to have seatbelt laws, and and it is the fact that it doesn't just affect you, it affects those around you. It can affect those in the car with you if you were in an accident. It could even affect others outside the car if you get thrown from the car. And there's lots of different things that go with that. So I'm, I've come around to that. But that is kind of just one, that's a small picture of really what society thinks about how we live our lives. Like, nobody has the right to tell me how to do anything and I will do whatever I want and I don't care what the consequences will be. And we forget that sometimes the consequences that we will face are not just about us, but those consequences will affect others. And today we're going to talk about sin, and we're going to talk about how sin is a serious thing. Sin is not just something that just is, oh, I made a mistake, no big deal, I'll move on, it's just my life anyway. Uh, Sin will affect others, sin affects God immensely, and our sin is taken seriously throughout Scripture, and that's what we're going to see today as we look at Joshua once again. We are going to be in Joshua chapter 7, Uh, we won't quite read there yet. But uh, you can turn there as you get ready for Joshua chapter 7. We do have some review to get through before we get there. Uh, Joshua chapter 7 is going to be a story that many of us have heard. Maybe many of us have kind of overlooked. Maybe some of us have been perplexed by. And we're going to look and see what God has to say in his word in chapter 7 in a moment. But so far in Joshua, we've seen a few things. Uh, Joshua and the rest of Israel have been called to have courage through, through trusting in God's promises, laws, and presence. Throughout the book so far, Joshua and the rest of Israel have been called to have courage, to face the promised land, to take the promised land, through trusting in God's promises, through trusting in God's laws, and through trusting in God's presence. That what God has said is what they should follow, and that God uh, is the one that they need to be following, and that he is with them at all times. And then we saw throughout the book so far, in a few different instances, that courageous faith is seen in knowledge, emotion, and action, all of it coming together, that we know God, that we feel God, we feel Him, we know Him, we just instinctually know. And then also, and, and really most, is not only do we know Him in our mind and know Him in our hearts, but we know Him through what we do and through how we act. And so knowledge, emotion, and action are required to have courageous faith. Just knowing God isn't courage, just feeling God isn't courage, uh, and even just doing the right things without knowing God and, and knowing who he is and feeling him, if those things aren't happening, then one of, one of them is not the whole. You need all three to really have courageous faith. And we've looked at the fact that Israel, as they have this faith, crosses the Jordan River in faithful obedience, also in remembrance, and also in celebration of God's covenant. We see that through them remembering through circumcision, through the Passover, uh, through the, the rock monument that they build after they cross the Jordan River on dry ground that God provided for them. Then recently we've seen that God has declared his presence and purpose of his glory to Joshua. God comes to Joshua as the commander of the armies of the Lord and he reminds Joshua that the battle is going to belong to God and God alone. Every battle they will face will be faced based on the presence of God. And that that presence of God in the battle is for one purpose, and that purpose is his glory, God's glory to be seen throughout the world, to be seen throughout Canaan, to be seen wherever and anywhere it will be heard or seen. That his glory is what he cares about most of all, and he is choosing to use Israel for his purpose, and is going to be leading them with his presence. And then we see the very first battle, this comes true, that God is with his people, and he 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 gets together this uh, really weird battle plan of of circling around Jericho once every day for six days seven times on the seventh day walk around then shout blow blow trumpets and then the walls will fall down and you'll be able to take the city it sounds crazy but that's what God told Israel to do and they follow him they obey him and as they obey him God gives them complete victory over Jericho Israel receives complete victory. No question about it, everything is 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 destroyed with the exception of Rahab and her family because of her faith and because God shows mercy and grace to Rahab and her family, which we looked at last week. But even in the midst of that, the sin of the city was judged as Israel went through and destroyed everyone and everything that did not have faith in the God of Israel. And not only were it the people and the livestock, it was also those things, the, the gold, the silver, all the possessions they would find in Jericho, that they were to destroy them, or if not to destroy them, the most precious and valuable they were to put into the, the treasury of God himself. That would one day used, be used for his glory. And that's what Israel was called to do, and that's what it seemed like Israel had done. God had given them complete victory. Then, In Joshua chapter 7, where we find ourselves today, before I read the whole passage, I'm just going to read you the very first word. The first word of Joshua chapter 7. But. Isn't this one of the most powerful words in all of the English language? You can say so many good things, and you can talk about something for so long, and everything can change with just one word. The word but. And here we see it in Scripture, and we see that God has given complete victory over Jericho but there's a but. And what is the but? Well, we're going to see that today. As we look at chapter 7, we're going to see, even though God was doing great things, God was showing his presence. He gave them great and complete victory. There was something happening that d- allows everything to change. And we're going to see, it's, I'm getting ahead of myself, we're going to see that this thing that changes, that causes this but to be seen here in this, in this passage, is sin. Sin. So let's read chapter 7, and then we are going to just go through, and I'm going to make some observations. This is the whole chapter we're going to look at. It all goes together. And as we look at all of these things, then we will see what God has to say about sin. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, of Zerah, and of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which was near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, "Go up and spy out the land." And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, "Do not do not have all the people go up, but let two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai, for do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few." And about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel... And they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? "'Israel has sinned, and they have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded them. And they have taken some of the devoted things, and they have stolen and lied, and put them in their own belongings. Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn, they turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become devoted for destruction.'" I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate consecrate yourself today, and consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, "These These are the devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near the clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near the, by the households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because the, he transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought near his household man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done, and do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why do you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger therefore this day has uh, this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acor. All right, so this is an interesting story, and I just want to start by saying if you remember a few weeks ago we talked about the fact that God is not a God who takes sides, that God cares about his glory above all else, and so you would think. As we just saw in Jericho, the complete destruction of Jericho was, a, was to show us that indeed God was against the Canaanites and for Israel. Now this we have right on the back of this, right after this, now we see that a man of Israel, of the people of Israel, the whole people actually in a moment will see that, are not exempt from God's judgment simply because they are Israelites. That God most of all cares about his glory and sin is an enemy against his glory and therefore he deals with sin whether it's with the Canaanites or whether it's with his own people. This is a story we'll see throughout scripture. His own people end up exiled because of their sin. So God cares most about himself and cares most about his glory so that he can show the earth the mercy and grace that he has showered upon us and that is not seen when sin is in the way. And so we, as we think about that, we look at this chapter and we see how does God deal with sin? How does God look at sin? The main idea of today's sermon as we look at Joshua chapter 7 is this. Israel's biggest threat and enemy is not the Canaanites. Israel's biggest threat and the biggest enemy that they have to face in this new land is not the Canaanite people. Because God had already promised victory over them. But their greatest threat and their greatest enemy was their sin. That sin was going to be the enemy that would destroy them before any of the Canaanite people would be able to do that. That sin is what is going to get in between God's promise of victory and their failure and defeat. And so we see that that comes clear in in verse 1a, that idea that I said, like, everything's going well, but... The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, and of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. We see in the midst of God doing so much and proving his presence through such a simple battle plan that didn't seem like it would work, and yet it did, and God showed all of Israel his power and his might and his presence, and even in that, Achan decides to take some of the devoted things. Remember, the most, price, the most precious uh, things that were found in Jericho were to, be, were to be given to the treasury of the Lord. And Achan sees these things, the devoted things, that were meant to be devoted to the use of the Lord, to the glory of God. He takes for himself to give himself glory. And so we see right off the bat that sin is attacking Israel. And we'll see all the consequences of that in a moment. But a few things just to mention as we think about sin. What is the sin here? Well, the sin, I, I would say, just using the Ten Commandments alone, you can see at least four, if not five, of the first Ten Commandments are broken just in this one act. You could go even further. But the first thing, obviously, we see is theft. He stole something that wasn't his. We see lying. Not only did he steal it, but he hid it. He was deceitful. He didn't want people to find out. He hid his sin, and so there was not only Theft, but there was lying. So he's broken two commandments there. Then we see covetousness. He is coveting. Uh, And he actually says that himself later on in the passage when he's asked to confess his sin. He said, I coveted them and I took them. Remember the 10th commandment is don't covet something that belongs to someone else that's not yours. And so right off the bat, we see the ones right on the outside, the surface. Theft, lying, covetousness. We see that happening in his life. But ultimately, what Achan really does, and in Colossians 3.5, you can go there if you wish to read it, but in Colossians 3.5, it says uh, that covetousness is idolatry covetousness is idolatry when you put anything in front of God if you place any desire before God and you place any desire before his instructions if you do that then it is nothing short of breaking the very first and second commandment of God putting someone or something before God is having another God before him and if this physical idea of whatever this physical item is that is taking more glory than God it is become an idol as well, and so we see at the very just at the very surface level, we see five of the Ten Commandments broken by Achan here, and there's so much more nuance here that Achan really spit in the face of God by saying, "I know you've given all this to us, but I'm just going to take a little bit for myself." I don't have time to go through the whole story, but we see a very similar story happen in the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira, if you know that story. They sell all their land and they come to the, to the apostles and they say, we've sold all our land. Here is all the money that we earned to go towards the church. Turned out that that wasn't all their money and they were holding some back and they lied. And God had to deal with their sin as well by killing both of them because they lied and because they stole and ultimately is because they put something in front of him, idolatry. And we'll see that this is not the only time that Israel is going to struggle with this. This is uh, one instance here in Jericho. Uh, then we're going to see it continue on through the, the Old Testament that Israel time and time again ends up falling for idolatry in so many ways, shapes, and forms. But God needs to punish this. God needs to deal with this sin. So right off the bat, that's what we see this sin has been. So the main idea, Israel's biggest threat and enemy is not the Canaanites, but it is their sin. So we see a few things as we go through this passage. We've already read all of it, so I'm just going to kind of go back to a few of these things. In verse 1, we see uh in, in the point 1 is sin is serious in the eyes of God. God sees sin seriously. It is my concern that many of us live a life in which when we sin, we just justify it or we condone it or we just kind of brush it away and say, well, I'm just human, it's just sin. Everybody does it, it's not a big deal. God says sin is a big deal and we need to know that sin is a big deal to God. And how do we know that sin is so serious in the eyes of God? Well, we see here in verse one, in the second half of the verse, what does it say? It says, God's wrath burns burned against Israel. The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. How interesting is this? He just gave them victory over Jericho and gave them everything they needed. His presence was with them. And then it all turns on a dime because of sin. And now God's anger and wrath is being, it burning against Israel itself. The people he has called. God's wrath burned against Israel. Lest we think that this is an isolated situation, I just want to go to the book of Psalms real quickly. And I want to look at the book of Psalms and I want to show you here what God says about sin and how seriously He takes it and how anger and wrath is something that is stored up for those who are caught in sin. Psalm 90. Psalm 90. And we're going to be in verse, uh, 7. Psalm 90 verse 7. In Psalm 90, verse 7 and 8, this is what we read. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. But we can't forget chapter or verse 8, which we'll look at in just a moment either. But you have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. God knows our sin and therefore we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. Sin brings God's wrath and anger. There is no question about it. Throughout scripture you will see this to be true. There are so many other places we could look in the Old Testament as he deals with Israel and even in the New Testament as he deals with people. And when he deals with the church, such as Ananias and Sapphira and others. God judges sin, and his wrath and anger burn against Israel, but it burns against all of sin. So we see that God's wrath burned against Israel, but we also see sin is serious in the fact that God exposed Achan's secret sin. How many of us have a secret sin that we might be battling and we've never told anybody about? We try to keep it so that nobody sees it because we know that we're walking away from God and we're living our own life and whatever that secret sin is and we think we can hide it from all of those around us and we think that because nobody knows it's not a big deal. But God says here that Achan's secret sin was exposed. They go through this whole process of calling out each, uh, each, fam- each clan. And they, fo- they call out each tribe and each clan and each family. And they eventually get down to Achan. And God exposes. God exposes the sin of Achan. He can no longer hide it. What he buried under his tent would not stay buried because God would expose it, because God cares about it so much that he will not let it stay in secret. We know scripture is clear that our sin will find us out, that when we sin, even if we think it's a secret, it is not a secret and it will come to destroy us. That's what sin does. Back in Psalm 90 verse 8 where we just were, Psalm 90 verse 7 says, We are brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath we are dismayed. But in verse 8 it says, You have set our iniquities before you. God sees our sin and our secret sins in the light of your presence. You cannot hide sin from God. You might be able to to sin, and you might be able to hide it from your spouse. You might be able to hide it from your kids. You might be able to hide it from your parents. You might be able to hide it from anyone else and everyone else in all of the world. But you cannot hide your sin in the presence of God. He sees all, and he knows all, and he will expose that. Because if it's not exposed, it can't be dealt with. And so secret sin must be dealt with, and God sees our sin. Lest we think this is just an Old Testament thought, let's go to the book of Hebrews quickly. The book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 13. Hebrews 4, verse 13, talks about the seriousness of sin and that God sees sin and what that means for us. I should go back to verse 12 and 13 in chapter 4 of Hebrews. So Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees all sin, that his word and he himself There is no creature hidden from his sight. All are exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account, which is the other piece. God sees our sin and we will be held accountable. Hebrews 4.13 says it. If you are sinning today, if there is a sin that is besetting you, that you are struggling with, that you can't find victory over, and and you somehow think uh, that it's not a big deal, and it's not going to hurt you in the long run, and it's just a little thing, and it's not going to matter, you will be held accountable by God himself. If not in this life, in the next. You will be held accountable. That's what we're told in the book of Hebrews. Because God sees sin as a serious thing thing we can't just take it for granted that it's no big deal because it is to God and it's such a big deal that this whole chapter shows us the last part of this idea that God judged Achan's sin this whole chapter of of verse of chapter 7 we see all the different steps that it took but in the end Achan's sin was judged God didn't let it go God didn't say oh no big deal It was just a few pieces of gold, a few pieces of silver, and uh, a cloak. It's not a big deal, so we'll just let it go on and let it and just move on. That was not God's uh, intention here. He judged the sin, and he he judged it in a lot of different ways, which we're about to look at in just a moment. Because the second point we look at this morning is that sin brings serious consequences. Since sin is so serious in the eyes of God, sin brings serious consequences. And we see that here in chapter 7 of Joshua. The very first thing we see is that there is a battle against Ai, a small, a small, a small nation. After they defeated Jericho, the impenetrable fortress, now they go on to fight this little tiny city. That they only should need 3,000 people to go in and take out. And that's part of the reason why we're told this. This is If God just gave them victory over some place, they should have never had any business having victory over it. Now they're going to a place where everyone would assume that they're going to have victory. And we see that they lose the battle. It should have been an easy victory, but it didn't go their way. God's presence was with them when they defeated Jericho. But what we're going to see in a moment is that God's presence, although he was there, he removed his hand from Israel as they went into Ai. And they lost the battle. This was a consequence of Achan's sin. Now notice, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, but notice that this consequence is not just Achan's consequence. This is a consequence for the whole of Israel. And we'll look at that in more detail in just a moment. So that's the first consequence we see. The second consequence we see, which I already kind of alluded to, is that God removes his presence. God removes his presence. This is a consequence. When sin is there, God can't be, and therefore he removed his presence from Israel. And you say, wait a minute, God is omnipresent, he's always everywhere. Yes, in a very real way he is there, but his presence can be manifested and seen and used. And really when we use the word presence here, it's talking about his hand of protection, his hand of guidance, his hand of battle, has all been removed from Israel we see that specifically in a few places here. Verses six through nine, Joshua is beside himself and he's come to God and with the elders and he's praying to God and said, why have you done this? Why have you allowed us to lose? Why have you allowed this to happen? We're going to be, we're going to, our name is going to be taken from the earth and not only that, your name will be blasphemed. No doubt Joshua remembers the times that Moses prayed very similar prayers. When there was defeats or when there was when Israel went away, they shouldn't have gone. And Moses would say, remember your name, God. Remember your glory. Don't wipe out your people because you would look bad. And Joshua says the same thing in his prayer. But I want to get to the core of what Joshua understands as he's praying. He understands that the reason they lost the battle was not because they had a bad battle plan. It wasn't because they didn't have enough people. It wasn't because uh, Ai was so much stronger than them. Joshua knew that there was one reason they lost the battle, and that's because God didn't give them victory. That God did not give them the battle that he thought that they would he would have. That God is the one that he comes to. He doesn't come back and say, oh, okay, let's regroup and let's attack again. No, he goes right to praying to God and saying, why have you done this? He understands that God has removed his presence, his hand of protection and victory over Israel. At this point, he doesn't know why, but he does understand that God is the one that has given victory to Ai. And so he comes and he asks God, later on in verses 12 and 13, as God speaks to Joshua, he says, therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies, they turn their backs before their enemies, because they have been, because they have been devoted for destruction. And then he says this, I will be with you no more, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Black and white. God says, look, you're never going to win another battle because I'm not going to be with you. Because remember, the battle is the Lord's and I am the one winning the battles. I am the one that won the battle of Jericho. You will not be winning any more battles if I am not on your side. And right now, you don't have my presence on your side. You don't have my hand working in your favor because sin has come into the camp and that needs to be purged before you can go forward and have victory. And so the understanding is, is that sin does bring serious consequences Physical consequences, a battle is lost, but also spiritual consequences that God actually, in a sense, removes his presence, removes his hand upon us, and on his people, because sin is in the way. And ultimately, this consequent, the final consequence that we see in verses 23 through 26 is that Achan is executed for his sin, the death penalty. Now we'd say, wait a minute, he just stole some silver, he just stole some gold, he wanted to wear a nice cloak. Why is that such a big deal? Why would there be the death penalty for this? Because he turned away from God. And he said, I am going to put things and others in front of God himself. I am going to not have the faith in the presence. I'm not going to have courage. I'm not going to have the courage of uh, of trusting in God's promises, laws, and presence. I'm not going to do that because I'd rather have gold and silver in a cloak. And he gave up what was so much better, God himself, for what is so cheap just gold and silver that won't last. And because of his idolatry, because he turned his back on God, that is why he faces execution. God says, I won't tolerate this any longer. My glory cannot be seen when sin is in the camp and when you turn your back on me. And so Achan is executed. And this is also used as an example to those watching. It seems extreme to us, but sin always deserves death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The very first sin in Genesis chapter 3, God said, now you're going to die. Sin results in death, sometimes sooner, sometimes later. But sin always ends in death because it destroys. That's what sin does. And so this execution shouldn't surprise us because that's what sin does. It brings death. And this is an example to say this is what will happen if we turn our backs on God and walk our own way. Achan is executed. It's a sad story, and honestly, it's concerning, because as I said, he's an Israelite. How would God go against his very own people? But once again, he cares most about his glory, and he can't have glory when sin is there. The last point we're going to look at this morning before we get to our fairly lengthy conclusion, actually, but point three, sin affects other people. Sin affects other people. I already mentioned this, but all of Israel is held accountable for Achan's sin. We can't miss this piece. In chapter 7, right at the very beginning, it says, But the people of Israel broke faith as regard to the devoted things. It doesn't say, but Achan. It says, the people of Israel. And then it says, it was Achan who did it. Later on, in verses 10 and 11, The Lord said to Joshua, get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them and they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put and put them among their own belongings. I don't exactly understand how all of this works, but God holds the whole nation accountable for one man's sin. This is a nation that is in a covenant with God, and God says even one person's sin will affect the whole. And I would say even today, a lot of us neglect the fact that our sin, whether we think it's hidden or whether it's not, will not only affect our lives, but it will affect those around us. Specifically, I think of even in a church setting, when you are, when you are bound by sin and you, and that is overtaking your life, the people within your family right here are going to be affected by that sin. And God holds all of Israel responsible. All of them are accountable. All of Israel held accountable for Achan's sin. And part of this, I think, is because they didn't look out for one another and sin snuck in. If you think about it, like, uh, I don't, obviously this is just me guessing, right? But this is a lot of silver and a lot of gold. To take it, to bury it, it would have taken, like, it's not like, maybe you could have done it in the dead of night. I understand that. But like, Nobody was watching, nobody was caring, nobody nobody was there to say, hey Achan, where are you taking that stuff? You probably should take it to the treasury and not to your own tent. And and I'm not saying that this is exactly why God punishes all of Israel, uh, but I would say uh, Hebrews 3 tells us as Christians that it's important that we watch out for one another so that we won't be destroyed by the deceitfulness of sin. That is a truth that we can find in scripture, and that's why when sin does happen in our body that we have to deal with it and, and, and that God says it's important to look out for one another because your life is not your own. And if we're called to look out for one another, I believe Israel would have been as well, and they didn't do that. God holds the whole nation accountable for one man's sin, partially because the whole of Israel didn't guard against it, but partially just because there is sin that affects the whole. We see another effect on other people. Thirty-six soldiers died in battle. Thirty-six soldiers died in battle with Ai. Think about this, 36 innocent soldiers in the sense that they were not the one who sinned, Achan was. 36 soldiers left their families behind without a father, without a son, without a brother. 36 soldiers died in this battle because one man sinned against God. What you do today, your sin Keep in mind it will and can affect others in ways that you may never even know. And so it's important that we stay away from sin. It's important that we understand that it will affect other people and that's why God sees it as so serious. It is not just about, oh, it's my life, I can do whatever I want. What you do affects others. It's clear in Joshua and it's clear throughout the rest of Scripture. Read the New Testament, how many times that happens. And finally... this is the hardest thing to talk about. Achan's whole family was punished. Verses 24 and 25. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Now, I'm just going to say right off the bat, there are differences of opinion with commentators on this passage. Some believe that uh, his sons and daughters, although they were there to watch their father uh, be executed, that they weren't actually executed themselves. Others will take it very literally and say that the sons and daughters were with him and they all paid the penalty. They all were executed. The whole family was punished. So I believe they probably were killed based on the literal interpretation as we look at it here. Uh, but even if not, the point is they are being punished by even having to watch this happen, but I do believe that they were punished alongside of their father. Notice, uh, and just keep in mind, a lot of people say, how, is this, how can this be right? Why would little kids be stoned by Israel? Good chance these were adult children. They live with one another. There's no wife mentioned, so obviously it seems as though she would have passed away, probably older age. There's, I mean, there's lots of things we can kind of connect here. And here's the thing. When you bury something under your family's tent, there's a good chance your family knows you did it. And this is just conjecture, and I, th- I think that his whole family had a piece in this. I think Achan was the one who took it, but I think the rest of his family, if they didn't help, they at least knew. Just like in, in our court of law, you can be tried for the same uh, crime, even if you're just an accomplice. And I believe that that's probably the case here. But in any case, God says sin is so serious that I'm not going to let anyone get away with idolatry. And so his whole family was punished. Your closest relationships will be affected when your sin, by your sin, especially when you drag them into it. Your sin will affect your family. Your sin will affect your friends. It, it's not just about you. It's about others. So in conclusion this morning, as we get ready to take communion and think about some of these things we looked at in Joshua, first thing is, do we really view sin as seriously as God does? And uh, I know your questions on your outline, they're a little out of order, but we're starting with, do you really view sin as seriously as God does? The truth of the matter throughout Scripture is seeing that sin leads to death. It leads to destruction, and ultimately, sin leads to hell. It's not something that we can take lightly. I've heard so many people say, "Yeah, I know I'm sinning, but it's not that big of a deal. I'm, am I'm. I'm it, it's just a little sin." Or, um, "Yeah, I've sinned, but well, God forgives me anyway. Not a big deal. Uh, I'm just human. What can you expect? That's the big one. I'm just human. You know, a, a guy who might look at pornography. Oh, I'm just a man. A woman who might gossip. Oh, I'm just a woman. Uh, I, whatever we do, I'm just a man. That's. We can't take sin lightly. We need to take it seriously. God does. And if God takes it seriously, so should we. So ultimately, sin leads to death and hell. But there's also... So in a minute, I'm going to talk about how that changes for us through Jesus. But Christians, if we've accepted Jesus, this also applies to us. Even if we've accepted God's forgiveness, we've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, sin still holds consequences. Forgiveness doesn't equal freedom from suffering, correction, and discipline. So many times we feel like, well, I'm forgiven by God so I can just go and it's not a big deal if I sin anymore because God has forgiven me. Yes, he's forgiven you and praise the Lord that he's forgiven you through his death and his resurrection. And you don't have to be condemned eternally because of that sin. But God will still bring consequences into your life if you are sinning and continuing in it. Because he takes it seriously and he will not stand for sin because he wants to be glorified in your life and he can't be glorified in your life if you are encaptured by sin. And so keep in mind that just because we're forgiven by Jesus through his cross doesn't mean that sin doesn't hold consequences for us. There are still earthly consequences. If you murder somebody, you might be forgiven, but you still have to go to prison. There are consequences to sin. So really, the truth of the matter is, is God cares when you sin. Christian, God cares when you sin. In fact, Ephesians 4.30 says that the Holy Spirit is grieved when we walk in sin. When we walk away from what God has told us to do, that the Holy Spirit is grieved. Sadness. You even remember when God sent the flood on Noah's day, that the reason we're told that he looked at all the earth, he saw the sin and destruction, and it grieved him. It makes God sad. It brings true grieving to him. And so when we sin, it is not only going to affect others, as I've been talking about through this whole time, but mostly it's going to affect God himself. It's going to make him grieve over your sin. So if God says sin is that serious, it's going to result in hell. And God's going to judge sin. We know that to be true. So how will your sin be judged? How will your sin be judged? There's two options on how your sin can be judged. And we talked about this last week. We'll talk about it again. I think it's vitally important. Either your sin will be judged in hell as you pay the punishment for your sin, the death that will last forever, that is a separation from God forever in a place that there will be everlasting uh, torture and everlasting punishment and everlasting pain. There's that way. Or... Sin. Your sin can be judged through the cross of Christ. Through the cross of Christ. You see, Jesus, when he died for our sin, took God's judgment for sin on himself. So we don't have to face the judgment that he is giving to those who are going to hell. There is that judgment that will happen to those who don't put their faith in Jesus Christ. But Jesus on the cross, took the punishment, the consequences for our sin on himself. If you remember when we talked about consequences, we said one of the consequences was that God removes his presence and that God can remove his hand upon our lives and then things will just go crazy because we're on our own. That's the worst place to be. Keep in mind if you remember when Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God himself had to turn his back on his own son because the sin that was being poured upon his body was so terrible and it grieved God so much and his wrath was being poured on his own son so much that Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? The presence of God, the hand of God was temporarily removed in that moment. Just as though, so God, Jesus even took that punishment on himself. And then he paid the death penalty for our sin that we talked about. The execution that comes as a result of sin. Death always comes from sin. Jesus took that death on his own self for us. And so our sin was paid for. He took the punishment. He took the consequences so that if we place our faith in Jesus, he will take the ultimate consequence for sin. Like I said, there'll still be consequences when we do sin, but the ultimate consequence of death will be removed And we can be saved and have eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because he came as a perfect man. He died on the cross for our sin. Shed his blood for our forgiveness. Rose again on the third day to show his power over sin and death. And so now, he has judged sin. God has judged our sin on Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. And now in just a few minutes, we're going to have the time to remember that through communion. What a beautiful time to remember that not only is this communion just, oh yeah, Jesus died and that's great and I'm forgiven. He took the consequence. He took the judgment we deserved for our sin and he took it upon himself. That is mercy and grace. You see, we talk about judgment and wrath and a lot of this sermon has been really a downer because sin is a downer. It's the ultimate downer. It will destroy and it brings death. But the good news is that Jesus took it on himself for you and for me. So don't leave today being depressed because you have sin in your life. Leave today thanking Jesus that he took your sin on his body. And that means that we are not slaves to sin anymore. And we don't need to live a life of sin. But we can live a life in his grace and in his forgiveness. And walk closer and closer to him. That is the truth. That is the goodness. So what happens when we are overtaken by sin? Our last question in our conclusion. What happens when we are, so we are saved, we've come to Jesus, and he's given us new life. As we saw in the baptism, new life has been given, and Jesus took the consequence and the punishment and the wrath for us. And we've accepted all that, but yet we still have flesh, we still are human, and we still uh, go against God, and we end up sinning in so many different ways each and every day. What do we do about it? Well, the first thing is to confess 1 John 1 9 confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins talks about confessing to God James 5 16 says confess your sins to one another it's important not only to confess to God but to confess to others to say I am struggling I need your help we are the body of Christ we can come together as I already talked about in Hebrews and watch out for one another so sin does not overtake us So we need to confess to God, and confess means to agree. God, I am sinning, and I know this is a sin. I'm done justifying it. I am so sorry, I am done with it. I confess it. I am sorry, and I agree that it's a sin. And you say that to God, you say that to others, and then also you repent. Revelation 3.19. Repent. That's that's the talking to a church, and it says, you can repent and return. So you confess and you agree with God that it's a sin and you repent and you say, I'm going to turn away from that sin and I'm going to turn towards you, God. I'm going to turn away and I'm going to turn towards you in faith. I know sometimes I'll probably be tempted to turn back around, but I'm going to do my very best to be able to follow your way and not my own, and that's repentance. And so we confess, we repent. Now obviously these things are what someone who doesn't know Jesus has to do to even start a relationship with God. So, we talked about how Jesus took your penalty, took your punishment. If you haven't accepted Jesus, you need to come to him and you need to confess that you're a sinner and that you need his salvation. And you need to repent and say, God, I believe, uh, Jesus, I believe in your death and your resurrection so much, and I believe that you took my punishment and my consequence for my sin, that I am going to confess that, and I am going to turn away from my sin and turn towards you. That is how we commit our lives to Jesus. And obviously, confession and repentance and faith, it's all its all encapsulated there for a non-believer, but keep in mind the confess and repent uh, things that we just talked about, those commands, both in First John 1, nine, James 5.16, and in Revelation 3.19, all of those verses are written to believers. So it doesn't just stop at salvation. Once I've confessed and repented, then I'm good. No, it continues on. It's a daily process. We are saved, and we can rest in that, but it's a daily process of confessing and repenting as we try to become more and more and more like Christ.